Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. What's the latest in Canadian politics? Well, Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of School for Public Administration at Dalhousie University, will talk to us about that. And what would an electronic vehicle auto industry look like in the future? And is it going to be helping or hurting the Ontario economy? And our weekly Washington report from Reggie Cicchini as we cover frustration with Joe Biden, Indiana becoming the first state to approve the abortion ban, and a lot more. All coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As always, we want to talk about uh, national politics. Uh, even though the uh, House of Parliament is, is not sitting right now, there's a lot of activity going on in and around Ottawa. And uh, to recap and talk about this, so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, thank you so much for the time. Hope you had a good weekend, and thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me, and I did have a good weekend. It was good. Excellent. It's Monday Excellent. now, though. Uh, <laughs> Aside from the the, the heat, you know the, the heat, but uh, that's what yeah. we've got. Yeah, we, we, God invented air conditioning for us, so I mean we're we're going to be okay, I guess, for those of us that have that. Uh, I like, got a lot of stuff I want to talk about. Maybe let's uh, go back a couple of days uh, to some of the, as we mentioned, the Commons itself isn't sitting, but the committees are working. Um, and uh, well, the one that caught a lot of attention last week, of course. Uh, had to do with uh, Canada's relationships with Ukraine. I mean, we initially the the committee wanted to talk about uh, the, the the turbines and why Canada returned those, and that's still a controversial issue. Uh, but then a, a confidential Globe and Mail report on Tuesday cited three sources that alleged that Global Affairs Canada received intelligence confirming Russia's intention to wage war against Ukraine, and that Ukraine staff at Western embassies were on hit lists for the Russians. And apparently, uh, according to the report, anyway. They didn't tell anybody. And all of a sudden, uh, Minister Jolie was talking about that instead of the, the turbines. Uh, and then, of course, well, uh, first of all, I want to get your read on that. And, and of course, the, the Globe and Mail report on this. Uh, and they quote st- sources that suggest that this was a report from the Five Eyes, the, the intelligence agency of which Canada is a part. And uh, the feeling is, is, of course, when you get some information that, hey, yeah, they, you could be on a hit list. Maybe you should tell the people so they can take precautions. Now the committee is looking into exactly the steps of how the government has handled this whole thing, not just the overall piece of whether we're in solidarity with Ukraine, but also just the nuts and bolts of it. When were decisions taken? What did we know and when? What did we do about it? And I think they're sort of putting into the public sphere the the metal of the commitment that the government has as an ally of Ukraine and the rhetoric in the in the committee, the the exchange back and forth between the minister and Garnet Jenis was really, you know, heated and him saying, you know, are are we an ally of Ukraine and her getting really, you know, like swept up in all of it. And so I think we can see this is a very emotional issue. It is a very, uh, it's one that's very important to to everybody, but definitely to to the people who were in that conversation. And I think it's, the, the conservatives are really using their, their, they tend to be very good on committee anyway. And so they're they're using that to really push the government on exactly how committed they are to the cause in Ukraine and whether or not they've handled all the information as well as they ought to have. And so, yeah, this is not, not a, that was not a fun week for Mr. Jolie at all. Well, and let's talk a little bit about her and her reaction. I think in, in past episodes of this program, uh, you and I have talked about her, her initial uh, performance uh, when she was first granted this portfolio, and, and I, I thought she kind of got a thumbs up, not just from us, but from an awful lot of people. 
she has fallen on hard times recently. I mean, because uh, part of her testimony about this particular issue, the hit list, uh, was that she was not aware of it, which is pretty much the same reason or, or excuse, whichever word you want to use, uh, that she used when uh, it was discovered that one of her staff attended a, a party at the Russian embassy. That, and just after we had uh, you know, initiated a number of sanctions on this, does the uh, I didn't know about this uh, defense wash with her? That's a really interesting question. And I think the answer has to be absolutely no. That is not not a reason. That's not an excuse. Uh, and ministerial responsibility doesn't work that way, right? If we if we start taking that as a, a legitimate excuse and say, oh, well, you know, the minister didn't know and therefore there was nothing she could do about it, whether you're applying it to a situation like this or the case with the, the civil servant attending the party, it's it's the minister's job to know, and if the minister didn't know, you got to go find out, and you've got to you know. So there's something like alarmingly dissatisfying about the doctrine of ministerial accountability. If the minister can come back and say, "Hey, look, you know, we didn't see this. I had no idea," kind of thing. I was watching her. Like I I read the the transcript carefully to this time to look at what exactly she was saying about her role, her office's role, and the role of the department. Because it really seemed, honestly, to me, like when it came to that, the civil servant going to the to the party, that she really threw the, the department under the bus. She threw the deputy's office under the bus and was sort of like, this was their fault. And they didn't put urgent on the email. So, of course, I didn't read it kind of thing. And so this time it wasn't the exact same. It wasn't the same. But there was still this sort of sense of being, yeah, you know, we, we did what we had, what we could with the information we had and not answering directly the questions that were coming from the conservatives. There's a protocol here, and you've been watching this for a long time. And anybody who watches, uh, you know, after the scrums that we, when Parliament's in session, and you know, if, when the minister, whoever it might be, leaves, there's always a, a, a gaggle of four or five staffers, you know, and they've got their binders in their arms, and they're following along trying to catch up with the minister, who's usually, you know, trying to get out of there as quickly as they can. Uh, somebody's got to say, Minister, did you see this? I mean, but did they and did she ignore it or, or maybe she can't read every email i don't know what the situation is there but they pay a lot of a lot of people to, to red flag some of this stuff and there's that element you know with the the the, the staffer attending the russian uh soiree but the other element is if there's a hit list out there in, in other words intelligence information from the five eyes you, you try to tell me nobody in that department thought this was worthy of mentioning it to the minister well, that's it. And you, then you start, as you say, you know, to, to ask questions about the whole process. And even if the minister wasn't personally aware of something, why something wasn't put in front of her, why it wasn't put at the top of the pile of papers on her desk, whether, you know, physically or digitally, so that she knew exactly what was going on. And this wouldn't be the first time, to be honest, that this government... Those that we've asked those questions of various ministers in this government, that that question has been put forward with respect to the prime minister's handling of issues on a number of occasions. Why aren't more people protecting him? Why isn't there somebody? And honestly, like the obviously there's there's responsibility on the department side, on the on the political staff side, but there are political staffers who like that's your job. You're paid to to protect this person and to make sure they know what they are supposed to know, so that they don't get into a committee and be caught flat-footed. And so. Is there a, some, you know, some kind of a break in the chain here where she's not getting the right information at the right time? Or, I, I mean, at the same time, I'm saying this, and I mean, I think we're early days in figuring out exactly what happened here. We're less than a week. And so this will continue. There will be more, you know, more to peel off this onion and we'll figure out a little more, I suspect, about what's going on.
Well, exactly. But in past circumstances and even in past governments, I mean, when situations like this have arisen, invariably the minister might have some cursory knowledge and say, yes, we're aware of it, and this is what we did, and we're continuing to blah, blah, blah. But for her to simply say, well, I, I, I didn't know, uh, it reflects on her, quite frankly. I mean, you know, if, if the person running the, the, you know, the ministry doesn't know what's going on, uh, what does that do for the confidence that the government and for that matter that the people have? Oh, yeah, it's, it's a serious, definitely a very serious piece of it. And I mean, as you were saying in, in the beginning of the program, the House of Commons isn't sitting, right? So like as far as what the government is being tested on in the eyes of the public right now, this is one of the only points of, of contact the public have with the government at this point, because you don't hear much from the prime minister. You don't hear much from Christia Freeland, even though everybody's worried about inflation. We hear more from Tiff, Tiff Macklem, frankly. And so all eyes are on Minister Jolie to the extent that anybody's looking at any of the ministers right now, right? Because she's the one out front. She's the one at committee. And so she's got this huge role in speaking for the government right now. And I would say, you know, as the role of ministers has changed over time, as the way governments have changed in terms of the power of the prime minister and things like that, the role of the minister as communicator is fundamental. Right. Like we really look to ministers to be speaking to us about what the government's doing and why. Not that it was never unimportant for ministers to be good communicators, but I think the more government really becomes about like making sure people understand things, the emphasis on transparency, um, the extent to which people can be much more aware now than we could be in the past about exactly what government's doing, like and whether it's because of access to information or social media or whatever, right, like or a combination of all of it, we are much more able to keep a close eye on the actions of government and to go back through time and say, what did you know and when? And so her role in speaking for the government at this point is pivotal. Well, even the portfolio, though, Laurie, when you look at it that way, and I know that historically, uh, mm. there's this the the reputation for Canadian government, not just this one, but for, probably for the last forty, fifty years, is they don't pay a whole lot of attention to foreign affairs. I mean, yeah, it's there, but it's never an election issue. There's never going on. Well, the world has changed with what's happening with Ukraine, with what's going on in China now, uh, with what's happening with a number of different things with G seven, etc. We've seen over the last four or five months. Uh, this particular minister, Minister Jolie, uh, Minister Anand, and others, uh, taking a much higher profile in, in, in the government organization and a government reaction to these issues. So you better be up on stuff. Yeah, and I mean, like, not, not, to, not, not to drag up past wounds or anything, but I mean, when the prime minister appointed his cabinet the last time, her appointment as, you know, uh, taking this portfolio was not exactly, you know, hugely applauded. There were a lot of people who, you know, I don't know that I would say I, I, I don't necessarily agree with how they put it. I don't agree at all, actually. But there was a lot of people who made the who, you know, were not shy about saying this minister is not qualified for this job. What is he thinking? What does it mean? Right. Like, does Canada really have a global affairs minister like this? She got really, you know, not a great welcome from a lot of people and had to, you know, and I th and I think that she has done a remarkable job of learning the file and showing showing that she's absolutely you know up to this challenge and she's she's shown a lot of strength in this role but in this particular moment it is not it, it's not great it's not giving people confidence that the government has really got a handle on this and even you know if, if i'm not mistaken freeland has said that we haven't been perfect in our in our alliance with ukraine which i think is a very powerful message coming from her given her familiarity with the file and her closeness to it 
Well, especially, as I say, the reason Jolie was actually even called to this committee was to do with the turbine issue. And all of a sudden, they, they changed the channel on this. And uh, not coincidentally, of course, Minister and I was supposed to be before, before, up here before that committee to talk about that very same issue. Uh, but lo and behold, they had the, the announcement about uh, Canada upping their defense commitment to uh, training Ukraine soldiers. I'm not suggesting that necessarily changed the channel, but the timing of, uh, of that particular announcement while well, the heat was being turned on about the uh, the turbine issue is, uh, is well, shall we say, interesting. Oh, yeah, because I think, um, you know, to go back to something you had said earlier, like Canadians don't often make global affairs an election issue, right? Like it's te- it technically is not, it's usually not something that wins an election for a government or loses an election for a government either. It's it's something that Canadians care about, but in in election periods, we tend to focus a lot on, what are what's going on in our own backyard? What is your you know what is your financial situation? What's your job situation? What's your healthcare situation? Like those are the sorts of things we tend to focus on in campaigns. That doesn't mean that people don't care about what's going on in the world, and it doesn't mean it's not important to them, and it doesn't mean it's not an important reflection of how the government is doing. And but even now, like where people are, I think extremely concerned, even more than usual, about what their financial situation is. It's not an election period, but. You know, the inflation is the dominant issue of the day, the cost of living, the cost of gas, whether or not we're going to get any any relief, what interest rates are going to look like, all of that. And so despite all of the focus on what are primarily, you know, domestic issues as we experience them, even though they are global in nature as well, the fact that this issue, you know, the government's performance on this issue, the attention paid to the turbine issue and whether that was the right thing to do for Canada or not, that really seemed to get a lot of people's attention. And in the summer, too. And so I think the government had to, yeah, it's thinking about the timing of things for sure. And I, and I can understand that, as you say, because these things are in our face. I mean, you know, the Ukraine mm. situation's right there. It's, it's the you know, one of the top two or three news stories on every newscast, and justifiably so because of the things that are going on and, and the way that the war is going and, of course, the economic implications of, you know, the grain shipments, et cetera. There's a lot happening there. And I, I, I know anecdotally from my conversations with many people, especially on this show, an awful lot of people are saying, well, you know, is Canada stepping up? And we're getting mixed reviews globally about, about Canada's commitment to this. You know, the, they talk to talk and that's all wonderful. But when it comes to some of those other key issues, uh, you know, they're wondering about, you know, are they following through on that commitment about, you know, delivering of arms and, and, and aid and things of this nature? Uh, and, and that's why I think the debate about the turbines all of a sudden became uh, such a front and center debate because, uh, you know, Canada says, look, we're doing this for the sake of Germany, which is an ally, and we don't want them to freeze this winter. We get that. But did they consider all the implications? Um, now Ukraine, I think, has a, a, a question mark, I guess, about, you know, Canada's commitment to their uh, woes these days. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Zelensky himself has raised the issue of of how how deep Canada's commitment runs, right? And it's not enough to to have the rhetoric and to, you know, do the, you know, have a visit parliament virtually and all that stuff. That's all fine. But at the end of the day, where do we really stand and how much are we willing to invest in that? And so, yeah, I mean, I think part of what the Conservatives are doing too, and I say this not as a, I don't, I don't mean it as though they're doing it as some cynical ploy. I think to the contrary, actually, the Conservatives are trying to point to where the Liberals are on the issue and say, listen, they're not going to suck the air out of the room as the Liberal government being the ally of Ukraine. No, like this is a this is a global issue. This is about Canada supporting an ally. And, you know, if there are flaws in how the government is rolling this out, the Conservatives are going to point them out. And so they're not going to get, um, you know, they're not going to be able to just sort of smooth over the, over this kind of stuff. The committees will get to all of this. It's interesting to think about, too, 
some of the stuff that happens in committee over the summer, because again, the full house isn't sitting. If we think two years ago to the committee uh, work into the government's contract or whatever we were calling it at the time with the WE uh, Mm -hmm. company, you know, the WE organization, that was such a different thing, right? There was so much political theater in that and so much like, let's pump as much oxygen into an anti-Trudeau campaign as we can. Let's pull the finance minister in with it. Like it was so much theater, so much drama. And now this is quite different, right? In that this is really, um, you know, a very kind of different situation where the conservatives, I think, are really pushing, not the prime minister, but the, the minister on how a handle uh, on how a file was handled, an absolutely pivotal file. And so it's it's interesting to see where we are politically and we'll see how Canadians react to this. Exactly. Laurie, as always, thanks so much for this. Always enjoy our conversations. Uh, have a great week and we'll talk again soon. Awesome. Take care, Bill. You too. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University, with her eye on what's going on in federal politics. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We know the automotive industry is in the midst of the largest transition in its history as global car makers pour tens of billions of dollars into EV technology, zero collision technology, autonomous driving. You've heard all these stories uh, for the last little while. But we need to ask ourselves, I guess, just stop and take a breath here. This is all good news. It's going to be job creation. And and a lot of people suggest this is the savior for the auto industry, especially here in Ontario. But what is this going to look like? And what kind of an impact is it going to have on the auto industry when this transition occurs? And how much of a transition is it actually going to be? Uh, Listen to a, a fascinating podcast the other day. Uh, called Down to Business, and uh, the, the guest uh, had some rather interesting and innovative ideas, and I think some insightful uh, perspectives as to what's going to be happening. And uh, we wanted to uh, to talk to Dr. Peter Fries about this. Uh, Dr. Fries is a director at the Center for Automotive Research and Education at the University of Hello. Windsor. Doctor, great to have you on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Uh-oh. Can you hear? I, I'm getting a sense that we're having trouble communicating here. Can you hear me, Doctor? Hello. Apparently not. Okay, well, I'll, we'll uh, fix this up at the studio if we can and try to uh, d- redirect our communication here uh, with uh, Doctor Fries about uh, what's going to be happening here. And, and it's something I think you know we're all going to have an interest in. Certainly, even if you're not involved in the industry, we know the importance of the auto industry uh, to the Ontario economy. I mean, we've talked about that for years and. Uh, the, the shock that we all had, of course, back in 2008, 2009, uh, when that recession uh, crippled the, the industry altogether. And, and, of course, the federal and provincial governments here in Ontario had to step in with some supportive measures, as they did in the states. You know, the the, the uh, federal government down in the states and many of the state governments uh, had to offer financial assistance to keep it afloat. And there was, and remember, they, they canceled a number of different models. You know, some of the businesses, I mean, Pontiac and Oldsmobile, some of the GM subsidiaries totally went out of business uh, simply because they said, look, people aren't going to be buying cars and we just can't afford to do this stuff anymore. And that was frightening in and of itself. Dealerships closed. Uh, it had a huge economic impact uh, as to what's going on. And uh, the concern now is, well, what's going to happen with EVs? I mean, we're hearing, you know, the the good side of this, of course, from some of these government announcements and from the automakers themselves, certainly, uh, about what's happening, that uh, that it's going to be transitional and uh, that, you know, within certain time frames, depending on which government you listen to, uh, we're all going to be buying and driving EVs. And, and it's going to be great for the environment. It's going to be great for the economy. 
Uh, and you've heard all these lines. And, and, and that's good. And I'm not suggesting that's necessarily spin, but we need to look at this from both sides and, and determine exactly what kind of an impact this is going to have on the economy itself. And, and I guess one of the other things that I think is gr of great importance here is how realistic are some of the expectations for the uh, EV uh, transition in the auto industry? I mean, you know, we're talking about everybody driving them and everything's going to be fine. Is it really? And is affordability uh, an essential conversation to have, especially here in Ontario, uh, because of the impact that the industry has here? It's, it, I mean, it does from a, a global perspective and certainly on a national perspective, uh, which is why the federal governments of both Canada and the United States had to get involved in, uh, in well, I hate to use the term bailout, but you know, sustaining the auto industry uh, back in 2009. Uh, but here, especially in southern Ontario, uh, we see this happening, you know, with the Cami plant in Ingersoll. Uh, and, and, of course, the, what's going on in Oakville, what's going on in Oshawa, uh, Brampton, uh, an awful lot of this. And, and then there's auto parts. And uh, the Southern Ontario, of course, uh, is, is well known for the production of auto parts as well, uh, even here in the Hamilton area with the places like Stackpole and Orlick Industries. And, of course, Magna International just down the road as well. Uh, now, they're, they're making parts for, you know, the combustion engines that we've all been driving over the last little while. Uh, but what about that transition? What's that going to do to those factories and to those employers and employees for that matter? And uh, a lot of concern about what's going to be happening there. So uh, as soon as we get our, our communication fixed with Dr. Fries, hopefully we can uh, uh, talk about uh, some of these concerns and, and whether or not we should you know, be, be optimistic, uh, pessimistic, or have guarded optimism uh, maybe as the middle ground there as to how we're going to move forward on this and the impact it's going to have. Uh, because we've seen some people buy into this. Uh, I mean, I see more electronic vehicles on the road, more and more than I ever did before, more than I thought I would at this time. And, uh, you know, the charging stations are, are popping up once again because of some of the commitments of the Ford government. And we already talked about the fact that that was a, an about face from what they did when they first got elected about four years ago. Of course, they basically canceled all those programs and canceled the charging stations and uh, and canceled the incentive program for people that wanted to buy EVs. Uh, and, and well, the premier has since embraced that. And, and I guess that's an understatement given some of the uh, coordination that's gone on between the auto industry and the Ontario government uh, to bring EV production here. And uh, there's different kinds of production within the auto industry as well. And, and that's obviously going to be a factor in what's gone on here and the impact that uh, the, the, these workers are going to have. I mean, we've heard, you know, the, 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 the positive side of this, that, you know, a lot of these factories that actually were closed or, or slated for closure uh, have been rejuvenated because of the commitment that, uh, that all of the automakers, the big three, especially the big three Detroit automakers have made, but others are jumping on the ship right now with, uh, you know, Toyota and Honda and, and others. And uh, it's, it's certainly looking good for the EV industry right now. But at the end of the day, uh, this is only going to be beneficial, of course, if we, the consumers, buy into this. And I mean buy into this literally and figuratively uh, and put our money where, you know, the, they'd like us to put it, which is, you know, buying an EV and uh, and talking about the, what's going to be happening there. Uh, oh, we, we have it. Okay. Is Dr. Fry's with us now? Hi. Can we hear you? Yes, I can hear you, Bill. There you are. Okay. Hi. At long last. This is great. <laughs> Uh, I, I was just telling our listeners before uh, you joined us that uh, that I, I, I heard the uh, the podcast that you did called Down to Business a little while ago, 
And oh, yeah. uh, I was so fascinated by this because we've had a number of these discussions over the last little while on our program about the impact the industry is going to have. And, and there's a lot of concern about this right now as to, you know, how this is going to impact the industry as it is. We've heard some of the positive spin about this, uh, what it's going to do vis-a-vis -vis opening factories, reopening factories and the labor force. But should we be concerned about the impact this is going to have on the industry as well? Uh, well, I don't think so. I think it's going to be largely positive. I, it's it's hard to think of a negative uh, aspect of it because what it means is that Canada's largest manufacturing sector is going to continue, and that's great. With some uh, some provisions and approvision, but I, I, as I mentioned on the program, this is this is only going to be as successful as 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 we the consumers buy into it. I mean, at the end of the day, we can we can produce all we want, but if we're not buying them, there's going to be a problem. Uh, are we ready to to play our role as consumers here? Well, that's that's a great question, Bill. Um, it's it's going to be a challenge in some ways because electric vehicles are more expensive than than conventional IC engine vehicles, and so affordability is not as good uh, right now. And so uh, what that means is that probably the average age of vehicles on the road is going to go up. But I think that things will get into sync. Um, eventually and the, the the trick will be to get through this period when people are transitioning from ic engine vehicles to uh, electrified vehicles I, I think our confidence level in evs has increased hasn't it doctor over the last little while i mean the you know five six years ago the the concern and, and i guess the common thing i heard from an awful lot of people that that said that they were skeptical about this as well you can't go very far on these and you know i don't want to have to stop halfway between toronto and ottawa uh, to charge my car where it would, it'd take me three minutes to fill the gas tank it could take you 45 minutes or an hour or more to charge the car uh i i guess the short answer to that is the industry's working on that aren't they Oh yeah, that's that is the key. That and cost are the key issue. Uh, range yeah. anxiety. Um, it's getting a lot better. Uh, modern EVs have have ranges of three and four and and more hundred kilometers. Um, recharging times are coming down, but that has implications for battery life. Batteries basically usually don't like being charged too quickly, uh, so that can be a concern. So, you know, th things are getting better, but it again, it's a it's a transition period and there will be bumps along the road. What about the industry as it stands right now? Uh, you know, the, the, let's face it, it's it, well, it, it is evolving, as you mentioned uh, in the podcast. But I mean, you know, it, it was essentially set up to, to serve the, the combustion engine uh, automobiles and, and vehicles, of course. And uh, we have some plants and a lot of people employed in some of those plants here in southern Ontario, you know, Stackpole, Orlick, uh, certainly Magna. That employ an awful lot of people to to make some of those auto parts. Uh, will they be able to transition, or is there going to be a concern there about employment with some of those people? Well, I think I think that you put your finger on one issue that is a challenge. But uh, my my contacts in the industry tell me that uh, those companies, those very companies, are working very hard on transition plans. They're coming up with new product lines. The difficulty in some ways is funding the R&D needed to make the transition. It's it's not easy to go from making cast iron exhaust manifolds to some other part made of something else because no electric vehicle has a cast iron exhaust manifold. So, yeah, again, a transition period, lots of, lots of problems to solve. Um, but those are the kinds of problems that Canadians are good at solving. 
And, and you talked about something that I thought was very important about this, about the weight of the vehicle itself, which is something maybe the average individual may not pay much attention to, but certainly the industry is. The efficacy of, of these vehicles is going to depend an awful lot. They've got to be lighter than a conventional car or, or truck, whatever the case might be, uh, for them to get that increased mileage that we'd all like to see. Well, that it, it's a little more nuanced than that. The, the A battery is heavy. Uh, compared to the equivalent amount of energy in a you know in a, a few liters of gasoline, and mm-hmm. so what what that means is, is that to get a good range out of the car, you're gonna you're you're kind of stuck with a relatively heavy battery at the present time. So the rest of the car has to be lighter to maximize the range and improve the handling capabilities of the car and so on. So there'll be constant pressure to reduce the weight of other components like. You know, seats, glass, carpet, the body structure, the brakes, the wheels, all that stuff. Are you confident in in the industry itself that they can do this? I mean, because you know, we talked about efficiency, and and while EVs were still almost even a concept situation, uh, doctor, you know, we talked about well, we've got to make the combustion engine that much better and that much more efficient, and and. I know some environmentalists are going to say don't go, but we've come a long way in the last 15, 20 years when it comes to that, about efficiency, uh, some of the environmental concerns of things of this nature. And and that's industry driven. I mean, the innovation to, to do those sorts of things has come from the industry, uh, which I guess bodes well for, as you mentioned, some of the challenges uh, with some of the component parts here. You've got to figure that, that they've, they've got the know-how uh, to be able to do that. I'm very confident in the industry. The auto industry is truly one of the most innovative industries um, ever in the history of the world. You know, when I speak to audiences, to, to put to the public, I used to ask, you know, put up your hand if your car has not started in the last year. And almost, you know, back in the 1990s, almost every audience, half a dozen people would put their hand up that their car had not started. Now, virtually nobody does. It's, it's just, you know, modern cars are remarkably clean, safe, efficient, um, and, and so on. But they need to get better because, you know, many people have concerns about global warming. And uh, so the world has decided that transportation, uh, greenhouse gas emissions have to be uh, cut down. So, yeah, I have a lot of confidence in the car industry. Um, but also... Governments are participating in that, and it is necessary that that happen. Um, And that also helps to harness uh, the academic, uh, scientific, research and development sector. Um, And that's really important, too. So, you know, it's a a full court press on this issues, on these set of issues, and uh, we're getting there. You talked about a time lag, though, and this is something I think is very important from an economic standpoint. The vehicles are not inexpensive at this stage, and I know some people say, well, they'll come down as production increases. Well, they'll come down, I guess, as, as sales and availability is there. But for somebody, like, I, I just bought a new vehicle three years ago. You know, I'm, I'm not going to buy an EV anytime soon because, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm going to get a lot more mileage out of, of my car. I mean that, you know, from a physical standpoint, that they run more efficiently. Uh, we're keeping them longer. Um, you know, the, the, the last one uh, that I drove, I drove for, for 12 years, and it, it still got a lot of miles on it. I mean, my son drives it now. So right. it, it's it's about, okay, I need to get a new car. Maybe I should consider an EV. A lot of us are not going to be thinking about getting a new car for quite some time. So, uh, you know, this suggesting that this is going to happen overnight and everybody's going to live happily ever after, 
there's, there's going to be uh, some time frames here, some a lag here, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. The average age of a car in a North American road is somewhere between 10 and a half and 11 and a half years. That's the average age of a car. So your your 12-year-old car was just a little bit older than average yeah. when you passed it on to your son. And so, you know, to, to what that means in simplistic terms is to replace half the cars on the road is going to take 11 or 12 years. And one of the most important factors in that length of time is the affordability of the car. Mm-hmm. You know, your, your son isn't going to buy a new car anytime soon because presumably he's a young person who doesn't have a lot of money. So he's going to, you know, drive a hand-me-down car just like my kids do and so on. Well, th- that is going to continue for quite a long time. And if electric vehicles become prevalent in the market and are more expensive than conventional vehicles, that is going to hurt um uh, you know, affordability. So, you know, yeah, this is going to take a long time. Um, it, it won't happen. It'll happen more quickly, I think, than people might imagine, but it'll it'll take longer than people might imagine. Well, and that gets us into the debate. I don't want to start. I, I wouldn't pin you to the wall on this, doctor, because we, we could take three hours talking about this, about should governments get involved with incentive programs, etc. And I know that, you know, a number of provinces, Ontario, BC, and and or not Ontario, but I mean Quebec and BC and others do have that. Ontario uh, Premier Ford right. has said that he doesn't want to do that. U.S. Uh, just passed a, a, a program that's going to offer incentive programs for people to purchase EVs too. You would think uh, in jurisdictions where that is in place, uh, it's going to accelerate that transition, isn't it? it, it well, well sure. BC, it already has. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you look at Norway, the incentives to buy an electric vehicle in Norway are tremendous. The it, it, huge in, huge reduction in, in sales tax on the vehicle, huge reduction in cost of energy, uh, free fares on ferries. You get to use bus lanes like parking is free. Um, you know, it, that's why Norway is the most active electric vehicle market in the world. It's because buying an electric vehicle there, the government is handing you money hand over fist and making it easy to do. But, you know, governments have a lot of other priorities, healthcare, education, mm-hmm. defense, and so on. And and so I guess, again, as you say, it's a, it's a philosophical question that could go on for hours, but at some point, the government is going to run out of our money because it's not government money, it's that's my money. And, you know, um, it is a challenge to, to kickstart a new kind of marketplace I think it is it is getting there now. Um, incentive programs are a whole different kettle of fish. I think that making the vehicles uh, safe, efficient, and affordable for people is is a is a core goal. But maybe that's better done at the manufacturer's level. I'm not an expert in public policy, but it, it just seems <laughs> to me that handing people money to buy really expensive vehicles that are built outside of Canada does not do much for Canada. So no, exactly, which is why the, I guess the, the other side of that argument, of course, is why the Ontario government is making such a uh, an appeal and and, and uh, such an innovative move to try to get that industry anchored here. Uh, great discussion. Uh, always uh, interesting to find out just where we're going in a situation mm-hmm. like this. And I'm so glad, Doctor, that you had some time to talk to us about this today. Thank you so much for this. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks very much. And sorry about the connection problems. I don't know what was going on. There. Not a problem. Not a problem. Well, uh, it's it's the nature of the biz these days, I suppose. Thank you again, doctor. Dr. Peter Fries, yeah. 
uh, the director for the Center for Automotive Research and Education at the University of Windsor. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're having some technical problems trying to hook up with Washington, D.C. Uh, to get an update on what's going on. And as we mentioned earlier in the program, uh, very uh, tense times in Washington because of some of the diplomatic problems between China and uh, the Biden administration. Uh, and this all circling around uh, the, the Nancy Pelosi visit to uh, Taiwan a couple of days ago. And China did promise repercussions and uh, they've started to ramp up military action. So we certainly want to get uh, the, the latest on what's happening there. Uh, and a number of other issues, too. I mean, there's always going to be politics involved in all of these things. We talked about the, the Biden bill, the uh, Build Back Better bill that he had talked about uh, for so long. And it finally did pass the Senate yesterday, which was the largest hurdle uh, because of the, uh, you know, the, the the filibuster that's in place with the Senate. You just can't win by one vote there. And uh, they did actually get one of the uh, senators, uh, Kirsten Cinema, an Arizona senator, Republican senator, uh, to side with them and, and to get enough votes to pass this. It now goes to the House of Representatives. Well, that's already controlled by the Democrats, and a uh, majority of one will actually get that through. So uh, the good news is it passed. Uh, the not-so-good news is uh, that it's a watered-down bill. An awful lot of the stuff that Biden wanted to include in there uh, didn't make the cut. However, there were some drastic cuts to it before and uh, once uh, Joe Manchin changed his mind, the uh, senator, the Virginia senator from West Virginia, that is, uh, to back the bill, uh, several of the climate and tax provisions uh, that he initially would not support, he did support, so they were back in the bill. So uh, there'll be some analysis as to just how this is going to impact on Americans, uh, but at least it's there, and at least some of the, uh, the support uh, mechanisms that uh, the president wanted to see happen with the American people are going to be included in that, and that's, that's a positive sign. Uh, the other element to this, though, is is what's going to be happen uh, with uh, the the number of other bills that he wants, and I guess the overriding thing. And let's go back to this whole thing about you know, everything involves politics. Is uh, the approval ratings for the Biden administration are still abysmally low, and it's always hoped in situations like this, when a, a, an important bill is passed that's going to have a direct impact on on the citizens in the United States, uh, that those numbers will go up, and that's extremely important. Uh, because of what we've been talking about, about the midterm elections coming up this November. It's not a presidential election, but it's the it's it's the midterm elections. And, of course, the balance of power between uh, the Republicans and the Democrats uh, in both the Senate and the House is very much on the line. Uh, I think we've finally established contact with uh, with Washington. Reggie, can you hear me now? No, maybe not. No? Okay. Well, we're still trying at this end to see if we can rectify the problems. Uh, We'll certainly try to get Reggie to come on and talk about some of these issues. We talked about the politics of this, and of course, not just the short term, but uh, the midterm elections. Uh, But Biden himself, who, uh, as we say, is not enjoying uh, very uh, significant approval ratings. Uh, And in, you know, two years from now, there will be a presidential election. Uh, The the president turns 80 in, in just a couple of weeks, as a matter of fact, and there's some concern about whether or not he wants to run for a second term, uh, which raises a whole series of questions about how that's actually going to roll out. Uh, and will the Republican nominee for that, that run-in be Donald Trump once again? Uh, I think there were probably sometimes a little while ago where uh, we could say, well, no, it doesn't look like it. He seems to have his own problems. But you know, a number of the people that he's endorsing are, are starting to win some of the Republican primaries. And there's a concern now that uh, that also is, is is causing problems with some people in the Republican Party, uh, because both parties right now and both people, both Trump with the Republicans and certainly Biden with the, the, the Democrats, have factions within their own party. 
and and this is what I find interesting about this. You know, everybody had talked about a potential, you know, rematch of Biden versus Trump uh, two years from now. Uh, there are people in the Democratic Party that would prefer that Joe Biden not run for re-election uh, because they're disappointed in some of his policies. They're disappointed in 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 his performance so far, and would like to see somebody else. Uh, that's pretty precarious. Uh, I think what probably tempers that is the concern that, well, you know, could anybody else in the Democratic Party take on a Donald Trump candidacy? Uh, and that's a legitimate question, I think, these days. Uh, the other element, of course, is if that, who would that be? Kamala Harris? Uh, is there somebody else that, that could rise up? Uh, I know that uh, California Governor Newsom is, has been touted by some people as a potential nominee if Biden steps down. And does the party actually dump a sitting president and say, we don't want you to run again? I don't know that that's ever happened. I don't think it has in the United States, not in recent history anyway. So, you know, you've got to tread lightly in situations like that uh, as to whether or not, you know, they may not be happy with Biden, uh, but he's their guy. He's the incumbent president. And, you know, even in presidential races in the United States, incumbency has its benefits. So do you actually bail out on that? Uh, does Biden step down? Right now, it doesn't sound as if he wants to. Uh, you know, he, the age is... is certainly a factor in some people's minds, but uh, we also know that aside from two bouts of COVID in the last little while, he seems to be in relatively good health uh, and and moving along. And there are a lot of positives about what uh, the Biden administration has done for the, the government uh, with some of the, the uh, initiatives uh, to support people as they try to get out of the pandemic and the related economic issues. Yet it doesn't seem to be reflected in the polls. Uh, the Republicans on the other side are, are trying to play catch up, and and notwithstanding the fact that Trump is still uh, crossing the country, making speeches and, and endorsing some of the people that that have endorsed him in the past, uh, there's a move within the Republican Party as well that maybe uh, Donald Trump's not the guy. Maybe you know his time has come and gone, and they may want to look for somebody else. And the name that keeps coming up in that situation is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, there may be others, of course. I mean, the usual suspects, the Marco Rubios and others that uh, tend to want to run. Ted Cruz, I don't think, would attempt to do something, but you never know. So it's 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 an uneven playing field. But at the same time, I don't think he, we even know the players at this stage uh, that may be involved in this two years from now. A lot of it may depend on what happens in the midterm elections. If the Republicans should gain uh, power, well, that then all bets are off. And we've seen uh, with the president of one uh, political party uh, trying to deal with the House of Rep Representatives or Senate from another political party, uh, the bottom line, the reality is not a whole lot gets done. Uh, have we got Reggie? Reggie, can you hear me now? I hear you, Bill. Ah, finally. Uh, great to finally connect with you. Worth the time uh, to get this thing done. We were just talking about some of the concerns in Washington uh, that have been happening. Uh, and, and first and foremost, of course, the, the situation with China. Uh, I know that Antony Blinken uh, made some comments about this in the week. How concerned are they in Washington about China ramping up military action around there in light of the the, the, the Pelosi visit to Taiwan? Well, look, I mean, just uh, about an hour ago before the president left D.C. to head into Kentucky, he was uh, presented with the question, uh, you know, about what's happening between China and Taiwan. Uh, and there was uh, a moment of concern here from President Biden, uh, where he said that they are watching the situation, that he is concerned that China is increasing and continues to increase this aggressive tactic, not only through the strait, but kind of crossing through that invisible line that 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 kind of separates China 
and Taiwan. Uh, and there is a, a not so much grave concern, but ongoing concern broadly amongst uh, lawmakers and legislators in Washington, uh, because there is a fear here that China could potentially go too far uh, just based on, you know, this one visit from Nancy Pelosi. But also it's still unclear ultimately what China is trying to do here. Well, there's always been a concern, hasn't there, about a possible Chinese invasion of Taiwan, uh, and and it's you know it's it's ebbed and flowed over the last little while, but it seems to be ramped up once again. And 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 I've seen some reports uh, over the weekend uh, that there is some concern right now that what we saw over the weekend with the military action and and the the military aircraft and the missiles being fired, that this is this is like a, a dress rehearsal for the the, the invasion of Taiwan. Uh, is, is that a, now that's not a stated concern? I didn't hear Blinken nor Biden or anybody else that's actually going to make a statement like that. But I get in the sense that there's a lot of concern off the record, Reggie, from from the people that are watching what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you're not hearing anybody say that they're worried. You're just hearing them echo concern here. And I think a part of that concern, Bill, is for the aggression that is continuing. What happens if a mistake is made? What happens if one of these missiles enters Taiwanese territory? What happens if one of these missiles happens to hit some kind of vessel that may be foreign owned that's in the water surrounding Taiwan? What does that then do to um, to the posture that, that China is really trying to elevate and escalate here towards Taiwan if there is a foreign entity that is now uh, going to find itself involved, or if Taiwan itself is struck by accident, do you now have the West starting to build up its uh, its defenses there? These are part of what the concern is. Is this a dress rehearsal? Experts that we've spoken to say that it is not likely that, that China would go as far as something like Ukraine, uh, uh, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, and that's because there is an election coming up in China. Xi Jinping is looking to hold on to a third term uh, and expending the, the resources necessary to undertake uh, uh, an invasion of Taiwan would really undercut and get in the way of what he needs to do domestically to ensure that he can get into that uh, that third term or, or kind of hold on to that president for life title. Uh, so experts say, look, China's doing this right now solely to kind of rattle sabers. They're not going to go too far. But if an accident or a mistake happens, that's the question of what happens next. Exactly. And how the U.S. is going to respond. So we'll be watching that very closely. Reggie, you mentioned uh, that the, the president has is, is left Washington. I mean, he's been, of course, uh, locked up in, in the White House because of COVID, a couple of votes of it over the last little while. Uh, coincidentally, of course, uh, the Senate finally passed uh, the, the long-awaited uh, bill, that uh, the Build Back Better bill. It's, some, it's, it's somewhat of a watered-down version of it, nonetheless. Uh, can the president do a victory lap on this? I mean, it did pass, and, and it's going to pass in the House because the Democrats have the have the votes to do it there. Is, is it enough to sway public opinion to the fact that he can wave the flag and say, look what we've done here? I think it's possible. And I think you're starting to see that victory lap run now. The president you know, may tout this when he's in Kentucky today, considering the fact that there is $369 billion, uh, for, $369 billion uh, that is going to be devoted to fighting climate change as he's in Kentucky, a state that's been ravaged by uh, by torrential rains for the last several weeks. Uh, but you're already seeing lawmakers move forward to try and put this to the American public saying, look, we are going to make this a, a safer country, a safer planet, not just for you, but for the generations that follow you uh, and, and making it so that there are, you know, rebates and tax credits that could be available to the average American and, and you know, going beyond that, because this also has to deal with electric vehicle production that impacts Canadians uh, as well. Well, uh, this is a big monumental victory for a president struggling in the polls. It is now racked up with the numerous other legislative victories that we've seen the administration pass. 
Is it enough to sway? It's possible here when you add this victory onto something like the concern and fear still that exists with the overturned Roe v. Wade from earlier this year. These are things that could drive Democrats out to vote. Roe v. Wade is going to play a big part in the in the midterms, isn't it? I mean, we've already seen Kansas, of course, pretty much rejected uh, the idea about uh, the ban. Uh, Indiana has moved in the opposite direction right now. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see just where the states fall on this. Absolutely, it will be. And it's what what's also interesting, Bill, here is how few Republicans you're seeing go forward and talk about this. Yes, this happened in Indiana. Yes, we heard Indiana Republicans talk about this. But broadly, nationally, it's not a part of the discussion because Republicans understand that this goes against popular opinion. Kansas is a prime example of that, a deep red state pushing back on uh, on abortion, um, you know, access to abortion and making sure that it is available to residents in the state. Republicans are going to, you know, ensure that they they dance around this carefully, knowing that it could go in the way, get in the way uh, of, of voters later this year. So it's going to play heavily into what happens in November, along with the other legislative wins. Republicans are simply going to look at the economy and say inflation numbers are bad. That's what you need to focus on. Is that going to be enough for Republicans to gain full control in Washington? It's something that more people are pushing back, saying maybe that's not going to happen. It's going to be a very busy week and a very important week in Washington. We'll be watching for your reporting on Global News. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for this. Appreciate the time today. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Giacchini, of course, in the uh, U.S. Capitol. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.